Welcome to the Filmumentaries podcast. This is episode 12. I hope you enjoyed my last episode with Jonathan Rinsler, J.W. Rinsler. I had a really nice time chatting to him. He's um, really going through a very difficult time at the moment, as I said, being treated for cancer. Um, his wife has posted on Facebook to give a few more details, and people, of course, have been offering their support and asking if there's any way that they can support them further. The best thing you can do if you want to support Jonathan and his family is to buy his novel All Up. It's his book, it's his novel, he's going to get money from it and it's going to help him and his family in this difficult time where they're away from home, Jonathan's being treated and the future you know, is a difficult thing to see for them at the moment so I, I would really appreciate it if you could do what I've done and spread the word and yeah, buy his book. And it's a great book, so you're going to get yourself a nice little gift there as well, or hopefully a gift for one of your loved ones. This time I'm speaking to Marty Brennis, who is a gentleman who worked for Industrial Light and Magic for over two decades. He was there through the whole transition from the period of The Empire Strikes Back all the way up to around 2006. He is an interesting guy. His nickname is The Droid, or droid. He was called that very early on by one big filmmaker. Then during the production of The Empire Strikes Back, Brian Johnson referred to him as Marty the Droid. Yeah, I hope you enjoy the chat. It gets a little bit geeky at points, but I think it's a real unique insight that I've not heard before. Somebody who, you know, is doing a lot of, lot of stuff in the background and is involved with a lot of those big films we know, but doesn't necessarily have the light shone on him very often. So, this is his opportunity to tell you what it was like working on all those big films, and I hope you enjoy the chat. I'll be back at the end uh, for a bit more jabbering on. There aren't many people who can say I was working for Francis Ford Coppola, then I went to work for George Lucas. Uh, how did you end up working for both of these giants of filmmaking? Well, um, I sort of found myself being a droid. Uh, my brother was working for Coppola and uh, in the sound department, and they were putting together the edit facility, post-production facility for Apocalypse. And... I was in college and needed some work and they needed a droid to wire things. And wiring is something I learned. I got into the business uh, at the age of 15, uh, building audio snakes and audio stuff. And so wiring is something I've just sort of known. <laughs> <clears throat> they brought me into Zoetrope Studios uh, in San Francisco where I would do things like overnight, they need 96 pair of wires from this patch tree up here to this patch bank downstairs over there. And I go, okay. The next morning they'd come in and there'd be 96 pair running. And the next night I'd terminate them. So I was doing stuff like that. And I believe it was Tom Scott, a uh, couple of the guys up at ILM knew my brother and knew the guys at Zoetrope and they were looking for somebody to wire a blue screen. They had this monster with 80 fluorescent tubes in it and it needed to run on DC. So they 
I got this call. My my brother couldn't handle it. And he said, well, give it to the droid. Uh, and I was already being called the droid in uh, at Zoetrope because an engineer builds one thing and then you get a droid to build 99 more. <laughs> so I was the droid that was building the 99 more of whatever it was and doing all those things that a droid did. So they were already calling me the droid. So I went up to this little building in San Rafael and talked to the folks there. And what they were looking for seemed pretty easy. I went and consulted my fluorescent lighting handbook from 1958 and learned that, yes, you can run fluorescent tubes on DC. And they kind of had pretty much the circuit down and how to do it. So I came up and built that. And it was you know, a two or three week job, uh, just a temporary thing. But then once I was finishing up on that, I looked around and said, uh, you need those cables built? Uh, you need this wired? Uh, oh, would you like me to take care of that? Um, and one thing led to another. <laughs> and my two-week temp job pretty much ended in 2006 when ILM moved to Presidio and sold me to Kerner Optical. Um and so it was interesting, uh, an interesting ride, seeing all of the stuff get get designed and built and such. Um, and what what year was that then that you went up there to sort out their blue screen? Would that would that have been the late seventies? Seventy nine. Yeah, yeah. It was May of May of seventy nine. Um, my friend Mike McKenzie, who was also working there, he started in April of seventy nine, and he and I sort of lasted through many department heads and regime changes and managements and all of that. And uh, I outlasted all of them because besides designing and building new stuff, I happen to like fixing things. So if there's something that doesn't work, I don't like tossing it out, I'd rather fix it. And so I took care of a lot of maintenance, um, and took care of their phones because I know how phone systems work and radio systems. Um, and I sort of wandered through all of the Skywalker companies, all the, the Lucasfilm companies, because at the ranch, they were building the ranch. So there was the technical building that needed um, wiring. And so I went out, worked with them um, because ILM didn't have much stuff for me. I'd been working in the model shop and they came to me and said, we have this main character in this major feature film that we're making that we want to be a radio controlled puppet. And I went, you're nuts. <laughs> radio control is not reliable, but oddly enough, that was in the early days and I was given enough time and budget and designed a radio control system that was versatile that operated the duck and they didn't lose one minute of production time due to radio malfunctions or remote malfunctions. Hmm. Interestingly, I spoke to puppeteer Tim Rose uh, about his work in films and I said to him, what is the film you're most proud of that you're involved with? And he said, how the duck? He said, I think that was the best um, by far, the combination of the technologies that were available at the time, whether they were traditional or whether they were animatronic. He said, 
you know the film not so much but the actual the actual <laughs> duck itself um yeah he was very proud of that so it's interesting that you uh you were involved too so going back then to 79 would that been that would have been in time for the empire strikes back i guess that you were working on jumping straight into the the sequel to the biggest film of all time <laughs> yeah um my first feature film experience was working on post for Apocalypse Now, just a small film. Um, and then my second uh, feature film experience was working on Empire Strikes Back, you know, another little home movie project. And it just kind of rode from there. I had gone to see Star Wars in 76 when it came out. I'd read the book. I saw the movie was coming out, went, hey, this is cool. Got tickets to a premiere screening at the Coronet in San Francisco. Um, and uh, the girl that went with me, she says that I said I'd work for them someday. <laughs> Sat in the upper loge section of the Coronet Theater, uh, house left. And when that Star Destroyer is coming in over your head, I knew that this is a this is a significant point in filmmaking history. Mm. This is a special thing. Mm. And I was actually given the number for Sprocket Systems in 77, late 77, and called there and most likely talked to Howie. And they didn't really have an HR team. They didn't have a way to take resumes and such. So instead, I went to College of San Mateo, got my electronic technology degree. And while doing that, worked for Zoetrope um, and uh, you know did their wiring and such. So by the time I graduated in 79, I was all sort of filmified. Uh, I also had grown up around the union. Uh, I am a strong union supporter. Um, and I'd grown up around the IATSE uh, stagehands. And from an early age, I pretty much knew I want to be a stagehand. Uh, that was my career path. And getting my electronics degree was very useful in that. So when I got to ILM and see that they're part of Local 16, uh, that just sort of sealed everything. It went, okay, cool. I'll see if I can stay here. And I uh, was able to sign on to the union in January of uh, 1980. And uh, this is the first year that we've like had no work because the entertainment business usually weathers recessions well. Well, this ain't your normal recession. <laughs> nope. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Interesting. Well, that, that's been a good run then you've had there. Yep. And, and being able to be in on the bleeding edge on a lot of this stuff has been interesting um, because we were inventing computer graphics. I got my first computer login uh, from the computer division people in 79. I was droid. Uh, and at that time, that at sign was not, it was just being invented in the email, the whole domain structure thing. And then they finally got, when they registered a domain, they got kerner.com. They were afraid that ilm.com would get hacked. And I was trying to explain to them, 
So don't run it into your systems. Buy it at least so you own it. Uh, nope, didn't want to do that. Uh, <laughs> they had to buy it from a law firm in Germany uh, many <laughs> years later. <laughs> if only they'd listened, Martin. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but that also, that got me on the computer path so that I understood how Unix worked and uh, would hang out with the computer division people. Um, we'd play a hell game, a card game on Friday nights. And there was a computer terminal installed in the lounge uh, that ostensibly was for people to do their lessons on, to learn C programming, learn Unix, that kind of stuff. Really, it was there so that we could run VisaHell on it, which was the uh, score sheet, uh, spreadsheet program that somebody wrote for our card <laughs> games on Friday nights. <laughs> but that's how you really learn, right? But so those, your your introduction to computers then, I guess you were involved at that time in creating some of the motion control systems for the camera rigs, right? Yeah. Can you, can you, can you talk a little bit about how important that invention was to, to the films that we're talking about? It's an interesting path also because... I had touched on it early in my life. I got into playing with computers when I was in grade school. We had a access to a terminal that uh, was a dial-up line. It was a teletype dial-up line to an HP computer. And I learned basic programming and focal programming and a couple other languages. And the computer we used was a PDP-8 computer. We had that at the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley. And one of my friends took me to see what these guys were doing. There were these guys in the basement of Echeverry Hall who had a PDP computer connected to an overhead gantry crane. And the gantry crane was originally there to move cement blocks for nuclear experiments. Well, those guys were long gone and housing and urban development was in there and they would build models of cities as they envisioned them 20 years in the future. Um, then these guys had this crane, a camera that ran at one frame a second, a 16 millimeter camera sh shooting one frame a second that got moved over this model like it was a helicopter flying over it. Um, my friend took me to see this. I was interested in the computer and kind of what they were doing with it and such. And that's where I was like 11, I think at the time. And that just sort of went by, cool. Well, I then am at ILM and I'm starting to wire up new motion control systems, new control systems, uh, camera systems and such. And I also have to service the old, what's called, what was called the icebox uh, and the deflex tower. Uh, which was TTL logic, uh, no computer involved in the original Dijkstraflex motion control system, all hard logic. And there's a title block on there that says housing and urban development. And I asked my boss, Jerry Jeffress, hey, Commander, what's this about? He said, oh, well, we had this um, project uh, at Cal, me and Al Miller had this project at Cal where we hooked up this computer to a crane uh, for HUD to shoot models of cities. And I looked at him and said, yeah, that was a PDP-8E, wasn't it? Yes. <laughs> and 
that had been Al Miller and Jerry Jeffress inventing motion control. It didn't quite work there. And this guy, John Dykstra, knew some people who knew some people and got called in to fix the motion control thing and make it work. Um, but then when Dykstra was doing this thing for this guy, George Lucas, he remembered these two guys up in Berkeley and went, hey, you guys want to come work with us? <laughs> um, but what was whacked was, you know, my little 11-year-old self did not know, of course, that I was seeing the birth of my career. Amazing. Huh. Um, we then went on to build the Motion Master, which was a Z80-based uh, motion control system. Uh, we built a bunch of camera controllers. Um, and, and I helped design how a lot of that worked. Uh, plus designing how the garbage map machine worked and um, some of the other systems in there. Jerry and those guys would sort of come up with the basic thing, but then I'd go in and refine it to make it usable. And one of my specialties is I'll go in and learn the job. I'll go work with the camera assistant um, and learn how the camera assistant does their job, how an optical printer operator does the job. And so I went through all the different equipment using people at ILM and learned how they do the job. And that way then I could make things, I could do tweaks to things that made it easier for them to do their job. I could put a button in that would do some routine that yeah, yeah. did a bunch of things. But that's a really important part, isn't it? When you're creating systems or understanding the job at large that you that you go and do those jobs. You know, I work in a team in the uh, broadcast industry. We, we, we do big sports events and I encourage them to come and do my job and I encourage myself to do their job and do each of their jobs so that we will have an understanding because one of the other issues is when you're looking after this um, equipment in your case if you can avoid having to fix it every five minutes that's going to make your day much nicer. I would imagine that given that the equipment that you help build and and run was spread throughout the world at certain points on different shoots. I would imagine that you've ended up in some places you didn't quite expect uh, to to rush off and fix things at a moment's notice. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I uh, most of the work was around here, but when a crew was shooting somewhere else in the world, I would keep a bag packed. And um, one of my favorites was going to Jelina's. Uh, Slovakia hmm. for Dragonheart. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. And they called, essentially, it was the producer calling saying, There's a problem with the camera. We booked you on a flight to Vienna. It leaves in four hours. I talked to them further, talked to the AC. I actually pushed it to the next day that I left um, because I really wanted to take the right stuff with me. Uh, it sounded like they were having cold issues. So I brought another camp film magazine with me, uh, some low temperature grease, some other parts. And some of the testing they were telling me about was strange, uh, but communication's a little bit difficult. So I fly out there, uh, 23 hours of travel. And when I get to Julina, 
I need a walk. <laughs> uh, it's 2300. I go walk about in this little town, lovely little town in the uh, mountains of Slovakia. And on my walk, I find the local radio repair shop with parts, electronic shop, uh, the hardware store, their version of Kmart. Uh, I found you know, a bunch of stuff in this little town. Uh, I'd also taken a look at the Yellow Pages. And from my previous experiences in Eastern Bloc, I'm actually able to kind of read uh, Czech and Russian. Uh, Czech's a lot easier because they use mostly the, the English or the uh, Arabic alphabet mm -hmm. like we do as opposed mm -hmm. to the uh, Cyrillic alphabet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I kind of familiarize myself with the neighborhood, which is what I always do when I go places. Then I get out to set and I find out that part of his issue is that in the morning when he's testing things out and trying things, there's sunlight coming in through the back door of the uh, camera truck, and it's hitting the optical sensors on the camera motors and making them act funny, <laughs> which they thought was a cold problem because it only happened in the morning. Yeah, right. Well, no, it was a problem because that's when the sun was coming in at that right angle to hit the camera bench. <laughs> um, and I found other issues there that it wasn't what we thought it was it was some different things and i so one of the things is i needed some parts some electronic parts so that i could do some modification to the circuit i'm mostly an electronics person but i had to learn mechanical stuff to deal with cameras and such so i'll do whatever's needed so i tell them well i'm going to need some parts and they're like oh give us a list we'll fax it back to the states they'll fedex it to us we'll have it in a week or so <laughs> Yeah. Why don't we just go to the electronic store in town? Yeah. Uh, we're here in Zelina, Slovakia. You know, we're out in the middle of nowhere. No, no, no. There's a very nice electronic store. It's <laughs> in town. It's two blocks from the hotel. It's right behind the cathedral. <laughs> huh? Well, thanks to your restless legs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the second AC was sort of tagged on as my interpreter. We went down into town and I found this lovely little shop and was able to get the parts I needed um, and went back up and fixed things and then found a couple other things that needed issues dealt with. Went back down there and what I really needed was an assortment. I, I didn't know exactly the values I needed, so I just sort of needed an assortment of values. And I looked at his wall of drawers behind the counter with all the parts in it. Mm. And I realized that trying to communicate to him which values I needed was going to take a while. And I just walked around behind the counter and he looked at me and then just stepped aside and I reached up, pulled out some of this, handed it to him, this, <laughs> these, you know, and I just went through the drawers and picked out stuff and handing it to him and he wrote it up and all. It was way cheaper than it would have been here. Yeah, yeah. and that, plus the, the FedEx overnight, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, so I was able to fix that and was able to fix a number of things on their set. Uh, and the producer and I were standing talking and she was asking if I could stay for another month. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and unfortunately I had things I had to deal with. So I was only there for a week. Um, but originally they had discussed taking a, a maintenance tech with them 
And she admitted afterwards that with all the issues they had, it would have been cheaper to pay and 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 carry a electronics tech in the company with all the remote locations they were at, with all the custom cameras they were with. Yeah, but maybe from then on, somebody else got booked as the on-site technician. Maybe you created a, a job for somebody there as well. Um, yeah. I, I often wonder about the kind of the balance because obviously if you're making these helping with these camera rigs and you're inventing the ways in which they're going to work often cameras get treated quite badly on set where where is that line where do you think that line is between getting the shot and, and wrecking the camera you know well it depends upon the camera um the VistaVision cameras there's a limited number of them uh there were only five of the VistaFlex cameras that we made Hmm. And one of them got lost in Amsterdam in the airport. Never saw it again. No. Oh, my goodness. I suspect it might have wound up in a maritime service uh, because it had a nice big hook on it where you could attach a chain and toss it over the side of the boat uh, <laughs> to keep the boat from moving because them suckers were boat anchors. <laughs> um, but what I did was because we had the same assistants all the time. Hmm they learned that this is their camera. This is not a piece of rental stuff. You are going to have to earn your living next week with this same camera. It's right. not going to be yeah. another Panaflex mm -hmm. coming from the rental house. Mm -hmm. So you need to take care of it. Uh, you need to let me know when there's problems early on so I can deal with it. Um, and I got a call one time from an, an assistant that he said he'd had a problem with the camera and he knew that every time he came to me, I asked a bunch of damn questions. <laughs> and so he knew that I was going to ask the damn questions. So he went and got the answers to all the damn questions I was going to ask him. <laughs> and in the process, found the problem, fixed it and dealt with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now he understood why I asked all those damn questions. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Working for Lucas, I, I always think of George as somebody who was, you know, wanting to strive to push things to the next boundary, um, whether it be animation or editing or video games or special effects, visual effects. Um, how hard was it for you and your colleagues to come up with technologies that met those needs? Um. It was a pain, uh, but <laughs> that's what developed. That's what sort of pushed pushed it along. Uh, anytime we did something, if a camera went to 96 frames a second, they'd want to shoot at 108. There were times when I finally had to say with motion control systems, we would be running, we had them uh, like a one ton crane running down a track at probably, I think we're up to like 25 feet a second, something like that, which is just like blindingly fast. There were, there were limits on how fast we went that were physical limits. Like the ball bearing in the pillow block is now spinning at 800,000 RPM <laughs> um, and, and is going to come apart at yeah, some yeah, point. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain physical limitations that I'm sorry, we can't 
viol- it's kind of like yeah, gravity. Yeah. yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing we ran into a lot was timelines. That they come to us in January and say, hey, we want this thing. Um, can you build it? What's it take? And it's, well, um, yeah, we can do that. It would take us about four months to do that. Um, okay, great. So we could have this by, say, May. Well, yeah, four months from when we start, we can have it for you. You know, here's the budget. Let us know when. Okay, great. A couple months goes by. Okay, great. We've scheduled uh, a shot with it in um, in the end of May. So um, can you can you uh, can you build that thing for us? <laughs> but that's two months away. Yeah, we're it two months down months. the line. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but you said you could have it by, no, we said it would take four months. And one of the slogans of our department was, it takes nine months to make a baby, no matter how many men you put on the project. Yes, <laughs> very nice. And when they're delivered early, they're a little unreliable. Yeah, yeah quite. <laughs> You've been uh, involved with ILM from through that huge transition period where I would imagine that people like yourself were needed more and more because, all right, the, the physical aspect maybe of the effects work may have changed into the computer realm, but then, of course, you need more computers. So they need more people that can run computers and run servers and render farms and things like right. that. Right. Well, I, I stayed mostly on the analog side. Oh, you did? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm more of an analog droid. It's that I know how computers work. So when I was designing uh, and building the, the camera systems, I could communicate with the programmer that, okay, I'm gonna put these lights on these registers. Uh, when this register goes high, this light will come on. When it goes low, this will go off. When this switch is tripped, you're gonna see this bit on this register, do this. When that happens, I need this to happen. And so I know how the guts work. I suck at writing code. So I'm more of a top level person and and that's kind of how it's how it is. I do a lot of different things. Uh, through my union, uh, I'm usually an engineer in charge. Um, and as EIC, I'll oversee a broadcast setup um, and uh, or usually like for the big conferences and such, I'll oversee the back of house of the, TD doing video switching and the A1 doing audio and the playback operator and the graphics operator and all these different people. Mm-hmm. And I build all their workstations and I know how all their workstations tie together. And one of my goals was I can sit in any chair in that truck. And, um, and I've done some work with trucks and such, mm-hmm. you know, broadcast. Yep. But my goal is I can sit in anybody's chair and perform the tasks of their job. The people sitting in those chairs are way better at it than I am because that TD punches video cuts yeah. every day. All day, yeah, yeah. And yeah. that shader is tracking cameras all the time and the audio person, you know, and so they're way better at it than I am. But if they had bad sushi at lunch. Yeah, yeah. You could jump in. I could sit down and the show can continue. It might be a little bit rougher. I might not be able to, you know. And so that's kind of how it is in the computer realm also. I I watch the computer graphics people 
develop stuff. Um, one of the little things I did one time was we had 12 new workstations, uh, Silicon Graphics workstations. And so I was checking them out, setting them. I set them all up in a computer room, fired them all up, and noticed something odd about them and, and went through the calibration on the monitors and set every set all the monitors to 255 red. Just show me a, a single solid red screen. And made sure their brightnesses were all the same. I had six different colors of red. And so that's when I went and got people like Dennis Muren, got some of the, the uh, upper end folks and said, guys, I want you to see something. And showed them about how all these monitors were showing a different picture. So how do you do computer graphics reliably that way? And that's where the whole monitor calibration program really got rolling. And, um, and it's that I'll look from a sort of a larger picture and look at details that, that other people aren't going to notice. Yeah, yeah. Um, that ultimately will come around to bite you in the bum. Yes, yeah. There's a real need for that, isn't there? In well, I will. I work in the broadcast industry as well. So what you described a moment ago, I'm very familiar with. And yeah, knowing where those trip wires are going to be um, is really, really important. Well, you you were involved in the video conferencing technology, weren't you? That allowed filmmakers to kind of talk with their effects crew or their on-set people. <laughs> we'll talk about that for a moment, because that because that I mean. That was the precursor to what we're using right now to do this interview. Yes, I find it really amusing as I'm I'm working on you know doing these kinds of things and such and and uh, putting together the system so there's tablets where people can draw stuff mm -hmm. and all of that. Mm -hmm. And we had this whole thing down twenty years ago, I guess it was. It, well, I think the original tapes I had were three quarter inch tapes. Uh, and then they, I guess it moved to Betacam tapes of the sessions. Uh, but we put together this whole video conference thing of having a nose cam mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> just under the monitor and a tablet that people could draw with. Um, uh, I was sort of on the periphery of that, helping put the gear together to make that work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and... So it's it's interesting now seeing people having these great new ideas. <laughs> and I'm going, dude, I did that. I did that last century. <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's so old. <laughs> yeah, because I, I remember seeing uh, I think the first time I saw or became aware of it was those behind the scenes bits for the Star Wars special editions. Um, where you'd see Lucas having a chat with the guys at ILM, and there was like a, a, a you know picture in picture of, of the guys all looking in with George's reaction whilst they showed him a rotating speeder bike or something, right. and uh, then George would pull it apart. I I think Schindler's List was the first time. Yeah, that's what I wonder because obviously Spielberg was doing was Schindler's List and Jurassic Park, and yeah. right, and so Jurassic Park would he would have sessions nose cam sessions yeah. with them um and it was really useful it really helped um what sort of resolution were things running at then back then standard def you know that must have def. been a pretty hefty connection that you had yeah um, at well, that a bunch time. Of, yeah. yeah a bunch of compression but but 
you know, we've been shuffling video around the world for a long time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, get a satellite uplink uh, and downlink and a ground station and all that. Um, but the, the, you know, the whole nose cam thing, uh, I see it coming back around now again. Um, but that's like the stuff for Star Wars that was with the uh, first high def cameras. Um, and like I was playing with some Sony high def cameras that didn't have serial numbers. They had stickers that said they had to be returned to Japan to be crushed uh, because they were prototypes and, and, you know, weren't legal to be in the country kind of thing. Mm, um, please don't send via Amsterdam. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, and, uh, and just helping develop a bunch of that, like the user bits. Uh, we had discussions about the extra data metadata that gets sent along so we could do pan tilt camera data uh, embedded in the frames so that the people in, in post could use that. And we went to a lot of work to embed the data in the frames that in many cases, I found out the computer graphics people down the line didn't even know existed. Really? So they were using like analytical tools to analyze the, the pound and tilt and zoom. Yeah. Yeah, right. Um, huh. And, uh, and it, you know, sometimes it's annoying like that, the lack of communication, which is something early on, I tried, I, I sort of wandered between departments. And sometimes I'd see somebody doing something and go, hey, you know, she's doing this thing over here. Maybe you guys ought to talk. Yeah, I've um, had many instances of that recently. It's interesting that you mentioned about the the data being, you know, in the in the camera end because in sport, of course, it's now commonly used for virtual advertising. Um, yep. All of that, you know, we have it with Formula One that I work on. Those guys <laughs> are laying down advertising boards on a on a corner that would otherwise be empty on a racetrack, and that that's the the premise. You know, that's the origin original version of that. I guess I remember seeing that in baseball games. Um, and the thing that intrigued me was when they cut to that camera that's looking over the pitcher's shoulder at the batter, and there's that ad that's inserted. It, the ad would come on about two frames after they cut yeah. to the shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm fairly certain that wasn't an engineering problem. I'm fairly certain that that was a choice made to cause people to look at it. Yeah, could well be. Could well be. Yeah. I learned some about that kind of thing when we went to um, Shanghai for Mission Impossible 2, 3. I lose yeah. track of the numbers of those movies. <laughs> and when they, uh, we were hanging off the side of buildings doing environment capture. So we had a rig that had a still camera on it that would take frames yeah. as it moved around. And uh, that was one where I had to get a special, I had to write a report to a committee to get a special dispensation to spend $1,000 to buy a one gigabyte uh, compact flash hard drive. <laughs> IBM had this one gig hard drive that would go in the camera. So we didn't have to change uh, uh, compact flash cards as often. And it was over $1,000 for that thing, but it saved us time, of course. Um, and so we went through these buildings in Shanghai, sticking this camera out the edge of the, off the edge of the building, off the roof of the buildings and such, to capture all of that. 
Um, that was another one I got sent to on 22 hours notice <laughs> because they'd booked me as part of the crew. I had my visa, I had my ticket, all of that. Then they decided to downsize the crew and I got trimmed and this other guy was supposed to go. Well, on the day that they were to depart, he got appendicitis. Classic. <laughs> so I'm flying over there, but I'm using his pack of gear. So I'm jumping with somebody else's parachute. Yes. Um, yeah. And I get there. And one of the simple things that had happened is they'd failed to pack the power cord for the computer and it wasn't a regular C-13 power cord. It was one of the C-9s that's, yeah, that's the yeah. three, right? Three and circles so, on top of each other, yeah. Yep. So yep. I went to the local electronics place. My Mandarin sucks. I can't sneeze. I got a little bit. My Mandarin kind of sucks. But, you know, English is, you can yeah. get by usually. Mm -hmm. And I go look around this place and I see this stall that's full of cables. And I go up to the guy and say, Mickey Mouse power cord. <laughs> Not a problem. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Good old Shanghai. <laughs> They've got everything you need there. Yeah. And the term Mickey Mouse power cord yeah. meant something Just, to him. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the international language. Yeah. Across the yes. boundaries. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I, I think... You know, as much as your world has moved at a dizzying pace, you know, in terms of technology, technological advancements, how important do you think it is to keep a, a toe in the past as well? Well, I look at all of these things and, you know, in broadcast and such, uh, people are always trying to tell me lots of details about a show. And at the beginning, it, they're all the same. Uh, it's a person at a lectern talking to an audience with slides on a screen. It's two people sitting uh, at couches, uh, you know, on a couch, on a stage, having a chat with some slides on a screen, or there's a video wall behind them. Um, it's a panel discussion with five people um, and having a chat, or it's a live performance, it's a musical performance, uh, we have a small audience, we have an audience of 10,000, we're in a stadium. Um, and so the basics of all of that have remained the same. And so, and, and the basic concept of, okay, we have this thing that captures images and those images go down some kind of transport thing to some kind of box that decides which image goes out. And then from that, it goes to something that's going to maybe record those or some other thing that's going to form it into a way that it gets sent out to lots of people. Mm -hmm. So all of that is the same. It's just the technology you're going into a TV transmitter, you're going into a radio transmitter, or you're going to a CDN. Um, and you're going to go out Facebook or YouTube, you're going to compress this way or that way or whatever, you're going to use coax, you're going to use fiber. At the heart of it, you're still capturing images, capturing acoustical vibrations, moving those somewhere, and then putting them back out. And one of the things 
that has been very fascinating to me is the artifacts that happen when we capture a series of still images. And then, and those still images are a slice of time. And all of the things that happen during that slice of time now happen at the same time. You take this chunk of time and you turn it sideways. So if a light happened to flash three times while the shutter's open, you only see one flash. If the light flashes every frame, in the playback, you don't see any flash. Um, if the light flashes one time versus three times, then it'll be brighter in the three times uh, until you hit the reciprocity factor of the film. So one of my fascinations was to learn first how all of the capture things work, all of the capture and reproduce. How does that work? Because there's a difference between a scanning thing or a bucket capture, or there's different ways of capturing it, like a film camera with the sliding shutter that goes by. Um, and there's artifacts to all of that. And knowing how that works means I can then manipulate that. So there are models, the Cocoon Mothership and the um, ET Motherships, their lighting on them, when you see them photographed in motion control, in our time space, you see the lights doing this pattern thing. And that's happening while the shutter's open. So I get like, the my favorite was the Cocoon Mothership that normally when you have a chaser light, there's a dimming tail on it. Well, I flipped that around so the dimming tail was on the front. So the bright part was chasing the dimming part. Um, and so by understanding all of these things and then programming, I can mess with it. Mm -hmm. And the other half of that, and it's something that I teach to, to you know, young film students and such, is to understand how humans perceive the world, how our visual system works. Um, you know, that we run at 43 frames a second on average, unless we're uh, in fight or flight mode where we kick up to about 120 frames a second. And our audio input and our visual input are out of sync because of the processing times involved. So there's a resynchronization process happening in our brains. Yeah, yeah. So we're always functioning in the past. Um, you know, our perception is from a few milliseconds ago. Um, there's a bunch of things like that, that when you really understand how human perception works, and we don't care about other critters' perceptions because we're not playing to the cats, um, <laughs> but it is fascinating. Uh, and how all of this, what's called reprography, I have a wonderful book, Neblet's book of reprography, uh, how all the different systems work to capture an image and then display it. And like plasma screens were wonderful because they're pulsing these little pixels. And so when you photograph a plasma screen, you get this weird pattern if you're not in sync with it. Because during your shutter open time, you may or may not get all of the pulses. 
That was something else that I developed is a VGA board. I sold about 80 of them, I think. A VGA board that was genlocked. This didn't exist in the uh, 80s and 90s. Uh, mostly through the 90s is when I was building them and selling them. So X-Files, all the computers on X-Files went through boards that I sold them. And that was so that you could run your computers at 48 frames a second, genlocked to the camera. For an ILM shoot, we went to uh, Hong Kong and I took VGA boards with me to Hong Kong to do the commercial with, which felt a bit like taking Coles to Newcastle. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just took the boards and they provided computers that I put them in over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was able to put up synchronized video, uh, computer graphic stuff, timed to the camera. And so I, I did a bunch of stuff, 24-frame uh, video. I, that's where 24frame.tv, um, that's why that's my website. Mm. Because I was one of the players in the 24-frame TV game. Yeah, because what people don't realize, I guess, apart from the fact that you're talking about a lot of this behind the scenes stuff, your work is often in front of camera, whether it's the fact that you've lit a model, you know, you've added the, the tiny lights inside a, a spaceship or you, you, there's a screening shot that needs to, you know, like I, I think of well, a show like Stranger Things where, you know, we've kind of got this nostalgic look back and everything is retro and everything is CRT. You've got to make that look right in the frame. Yep. Um, I worked, uh, I advised on a show about Steve Jobs mm. uh, in the early days of Apple. And some of the stuff they were talking about and some of the stuff they had wasn't quite right. Uh, and I was able to fix some of it. I also made some script notes for them because I had friends who were like roommates of some of those guys. And mm. so I, as a kid, I was watching a lot of that stuff happen. <laughs> um, but uh that whole that whole scene, and now it's getting to be hard because people want CRTs in their movies. Mm. And first, the TVs are hard to find. Yeah. And then you have to find somebody old and gray who knows how to make them work. Well, this is what I mean about keeping a toe in the past. You know, it's people like you that, you know, at least we're getting something that's, um, you know, in inverted commas, authentic, other, rather than just a blank screen and they after effect something over it. You can always tell when it isn't a real deal. So, yeah. Yep. Um, and yeah, cause I like, I like things to look right on camera. And when they're doing computer sequences, I always start from reality and work down from there. Mm, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so many times you see the people in there and they're clicking, that's a mouse based thing they're doing. They wouldn't be tapping away on a keyboard <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let's not get into the sound department side of that, where every computer has to make like bleeps and bloops and it just drives me mad that stuff. Yeah. What what is the what is the one thing you think that people don't understand about your job? This is a question I've been asking people recently because I think we all kind of know our own part of whatever industry we're in, but I think there are assumptions made. There must be something that people don't understand about what you do. I run in what I run into is that people think, well, it's like one of my specialties is wires. And and you look at that cable sitting there and don't really see what went into the design and manufacture of that cable. Um, I did custom camera cables for the ILM cameras that the jacket material on the outside was a particular kind. The filling, the stuffing in it 
to get all the wires to line up in the right spots, the color coding, the shielding, uh, all these little details that people just, uh, it's just a piece of cable. We can just get that anywhere, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And so there's a lot of things like that where there's details that people are missing that they think it's easy. Um, and so they just sort of brush off, oh yeah, here, you can take care of this or here, we want this thing to happen, but here's all these restrictions. Uh, that's, I worked, I built one of the early 3D rigs and there are elements of the 3D rigs that, and shooting 3D that limit what you can do. Um, and the people that I felt would excel in that were the ones willing to accept the limitations and work with within the limitations and make their thing work and and embrace it. Yeah. I worked with mm -hmm. so many people who as soon as there was a limitation like the camera goes to 96 frames a second. Oh, but I want to shoot at 102 frames a second. Yeah. The difference between mm -hmm. 96 and 102 is not enough to matter. But the calculations I did, you know, um, and that's what I loved with The Mandalorian. Uh, with the virtual, I think that is hella cool, what they did there. It's stunning, isn't it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I knew that they'd done something like that when I watched it. I hadn't watched The Making Of yet. But it still was beautiful back there. Well, it doesn't work well with bright sunlight scenes. Okay, so things are at dusk or it's overcast or whatever. Um, there are certain limitations to it. And I love the fact that I'm watching the directors in the in the making, and the making of it is more fun than the movie or than the TV show. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that the directors were willing to embrace the technology and work within the technology. And they're already pushing it a little bit. But to not, as soon as you put up any kind of limitation, to run up and pound on that. No, yeah, just accept that. Yeah, not see it that. as a disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just roll with it. And those are the people I love to work with, are the ones mm, mm. who take the technology, they push you a little bit uh, to get you to think about, well, can we do this? Or how would we do that? And people will come to me and say, I want to do this. And I look at it and go, well, the thing you're asking for is going to be really hard, really expensive, and take us a month. What's your goal? Yes. Yeah. And they explain their goal and go, okay, I can give you this thing here by using this lens, this camera, and this effect. Um, and I can give you a thing that is 95% of what you're asking for. And I can mm -hmm. give you that in an hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and so the ones that get it are the ones that'll look at it and go, oh yeah, that's fine. Um, the ones who just have to have it their way, I just don't like working with them. And now I'm old enough that I can just say, well, okay, find somebody else. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good for you, good for you. How do you kind of frame your involvement with some of these huge, you know, seminal films over the years, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Return of the Jedi and The Empire Strikes Back? How, how do you see your sort of part in, in their 
success, as it were. Is it something you're proud of? It must be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's that uh, the Technical Achievement Awards, the Science Awards, all those things always went to a group of four people. Uh, that was the maximum number of people was four. I was always the fifth on a four-person team. And so I'm in the background actually making things work, figuring, solving problems, figuring stuff out. Um, and then other people get the credit for it. They march on. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And, and that's where I really relate to being a droid. Um, because nobody notices a droid. But when you look at Star Wars, who really are the the principal characters? Mm -hmm. R2 yeah. and C3PO. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and they outlast all them humans. Yeah. Well, you look at any instance in those films where they're not operating as they should be in some way, everything falls apart. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. There were... Countless times in management, people want to fire me periodically because I'm sorry, I'll tell you, I, I speak truth mostly, yeah. right? Yeah. And I don't care if it hurts your feelings. Um, and so there were many occasions when people would want to fire me because like, I wasn't paying attention to their show. Well, it would be pointed out to them that that's because I was paying attention to this other show and the other show shoots tomorrow and your show shoots in three weeks. Um, and so the thing is, I outlasted all of the people wanting to fire me. And the joke was, I'd be the ones to lock the doors, turn off the lights and lock the doors. And I was. Uh, when Kerner Optical finally went into bankruptcy and got auctioned off, I shot a video, it's somewhere out there in, in the interwebs. Um, I shot a video, a selfie video, I think it was 2006. Oh no, 2011, that's right. Um, of turning out the lights for the last time in the stage. Uh, and there was a sequence thing that you hit the button and it went dunk, 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 dunk. Um, and walking through, setting the alarm out the door, latching behind and walking off into the sunset, uh, took me took me three takes to get it all right. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know, I came in in '79 and and left <laughs> uh, in 2011. And what I found interesting also is I always kind of felt that there were a lot of times I was sort of ignored um, in you know when when uh, stuff was happening and such. But I also realized. They built three custom shops for me. Very few people had custom workspaces built for them. Um, in one case, the building, before the walls were in the building, I was able to go in and define how my shop worked, that I had an exhaust fan in the ceiling, that I had a skylight because I love having outside light, and that I was right next to the shop so I could hear when things were going wrong. I could talk to people and deal with stuff. And I realized that not very many people had custom-built shops built specifically for them. The countertops were at my height, um, so I could stand when working, um, and heavy duty, so I could put heavy things on them. Um, and you know, it just was kind of an interesting realization later on. <laughs> yeah. That 
somebody did care. Yeah. It takes a while, doesn't it? I think sometimes to recognize the the kind of talents that you have in yourself. Uh, I think there's a certain point that that happens in life, a certain maturity level you pass where you think back. And well, I mean, the fact, Marty, that you're still doing what you're doing and you had such a long time doing what you did um, with ILM is testament to the work that you did for them. And I'm sure if I spoke to anybody who was at ILM at the time, they would know exactly who you were. Maybe not exactly what you did, but they knew what you did was what they needed at the time. So, yeah, I think that, that that's what always fascinates me about the, the film industry and the TV industry. There's all these people beavering away in the background and all the light gets shone elsewhere. So it's really nice to talk to somebody who has had, uh, you know, a huge, huge long career and, and a great uh, amount of experience um, doing things that have enabled us to, you know, enjoy the films and the TV shows that we love. Well, thank you, Marty, for giving your time today and talking about your your time in the film and TV industry. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, keep on doing what you're doing because it's uh, it's fascinating stuff. And I, I hope that we uh, we can talk again someday about some more of your experiences. It's been great. Thanks. Take care. Ciao. Well, I hope you enjoyed my chat there with Marty, the droid. I really do appreciate him giving his time. Cheers, Marty, and uh, hope to stay in touch. Next time out, I'm hoping to speak to Ben Dimmock, the stunt coordinator and stuntman that I mentioned before. We're going to hopefully record that sometime in mid to late December when he uh, has finished some of the work he's working on at the moment. Hopefully he can tell us about what that was and what he's been working on and his inspirations. And uh, yeah, we'll go forward from there. I'm also trying to set up a couple of other interviews at the moment. I've got a few ideas uh, going on at the moment. Uh, Some of them may be a bit beyond my current scope and my current reach, but I'm going to reach for them anyway. And of course, a huge thank you to all of my patrons at Patreon. I've got a couple more in the last few weeks, um, so I really do appreciate that. I think my first one since 2018. If you can uh, afford to give a dollar for each of the podcasts that I do and the videos that I do, then I'd really appreciate that. Um, Just a little update on the Ivor Powell uh, interview that I did back in November last year. I'm still waiting for the film that he talks about in the interview to be released. Of course, because of COVID, it's been delayed till April. There should be a trailer in December. That's what Amblin are telling me at the moment. And hopefully I'm going to get some exclusive footage in that video when the trailer is released. So keep an eye out for that as well. Otherwise, I'm plodding along doing my my normal job working for Formula One, which ends in the next few weeks. We've got three races left. So after that, hopefully I can focus a bit more on doing some filmumentary stuff. And thanks for all the feedback and comments on Twitter and Facebook. It really, really does mean a lot. This is just me sat in my room doing this. And um, yeah, it's uh, it's really nice to know that people are enjoying it. And I hope you can join me next time.